One of my fellow covenant pastor's daughters once had an elementary school teacher who died from an infection. It began as a pimple on her leg and became infected. It was seemingly harmless except that the infection had entered into her bloodstream and circulated to every single organ in her body. Eventually, organ after organ began to shut down until finally it took her life. Anger in our lives is like that. It often starts out uh, small and seemingly harmless, but before long it can take, overtake an entire person's life. You've heard the saying that time heals all wounds. Well, that's not so with infections in the bloodstream or with anger, because if anger is left untreated, it will not simply go away. It will lead to resentment, which in turn will lead to bitterness, and then bitterness left unchecked will result in hatred. And as a former cement finisher, let me say this. It's like standing in wet concrete. And if you stay there long enough, it will harden around you. And before long, resentment and bitterness and hatred will begin to dominate your life. Untreated anger affects every aspect of our lives. It impacts every single one of our relationships in a negative way. And yes, we rarely see this coming because infectious anger usually starts out pretty small, almost like a pimple, and then gradually takes over. Now, the following are signs that infectious anger uh, may be taking over your life. Number one, feelings of self-righteousness, that you're better than the person who has harmed you, that you would never treat another person the way this person has treated you. And the more and more that you paint your offender as being wrong or as being sinful or as being evil, you begin to feel better about yourself. Second sign of infectious anger in someone's life is that you become critical. Some people become hypercritical. And you may act like nothing is wrong, but you will strike back with, at people with your words. And your offender just cannot seem to do anything right. Their children are always misbehaving. Their spouse is always wrong. And you point these things out from time to time. Uh, sometimes in the sweetest, most syrupy ways that you're really concerned that the children aren't acting appropriately or you're really concerned that their spouse seems to be in the wrong and you do that more and more. And this is a classic sign that bitterness and resentment are taking over your soul because you have become a critical person. Sign number three is that people become pessimistic. See, untreated anger usually turns someone into a very negative person. This is the proverbial chip-on-the-shoulder person who's always complaining about getting the short end of the stick. Psychologists refer to the three P's of pessimism. They say personal, it's personal, it's pervasive, and it's permanent. Personal because they take everything personally. Everything is just directed at them. Pervasive because it seems to affect every single area of their life. And permanent because things just never change. Life is always bad. Well, number four is that people then will socially withdraw. When angry about unfair treatment, the natural human tendency 
is to withdraw so that you cannot be hurt again or so that you will not be forced to have to deal with your anger. And at first, this may seem to make sense. But over time, friends and family will stop including you in things. And before long, you're all alone, which only then fans the flames of anger within us. You think, my friends and family have abandoned me. But really, who has abandoned who? Now, number five is a sense of entitlement. You know, I need to blow off steam. I need to vent because I have been so mistreated in life. So we do act out. And we believe that we're justified in cutting out of work early or taking something from the job site. It's okay to steal from the company because they've ripped me off and shortchanged me so much. And people with a sense of entitlement feel justified to drink, to use drugs, to do porn, to binge on video gaming, to gamble or just cut loose because it feels good and I deserve it entitlement from anger is an excuse to do what you want to do without taking responsibility for it. A sixth sign you'll often see where infectious anger is impacting someone's life is a sense, or it's a desire to even the score. Now, most people would never admit that deep down inside, they want revenge. They want their offender to suffer. Now, you may never directly do something to hurt a person who's harmed you or said something you, that really upset you or frustrated you. You would never do something directly to hurt them, but you may do some real internal cheering if things go bad for them or for their family because after all, they got what they had coming. They deserved it. And this desire for revenge means that a person wants payback and does not want to forgive their perpetrator. Pastor Lewis Smeeds writes, the problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. And do any of these signs of infectious anger describe you right now? Any feelings of self-righteousness? Being critical of your offender or their spouse or their loved ones? Are you pessimistic at all? Are you socially withdrawn? Or are you having a sense of entitlement so you can do these things because, after all, I've been mistreated in life? Or do you simply have a desire to even the score, to get even? Beverly Flanagan says, It's one thing to have your heart broken. It's quite another to have it poisoned with the infection of anger. Broken hearts can be repaired. Poisoned ones tend to shrivel and to die. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that you do not fall short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And the Greek word here for defile is the Greek word meno. It means to die. It means to stain, to pollute, or to contaminate. And when we hang on to our anger, when we let it fester in our lives, when we even nurture it, then we begin to defile the people around us. Our stain of what's happened to us begins to show up in other people's lives. We're staining them. We're polluting them. We're contaminating them with our bitterness and our resentment. 
But pastor, pastor, you asked us all last week, you asked me this last week to write down my primary losses and my secondary losses and then to try and discern what the triggers might be in my life for my anger. What is the anger within my anger? And I've been mistreated, Pastor. I have been disrespected. I've been let down by some very significant people in my life. And if I give up my anger, doesn't that other person just win? I mean, isn't that just simply accommodation? I accommodate them, they win and I lose. That's what happens every time. They win and I lose. No. No, thank you, Pastor. I think I'm just going to hang on. To my anger. Well, listen to God's word in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That's God's anger, remember? For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Folks, you have to understand, no one who has mistreated you and not sought forgiveness from God in their life will get away with it. They will not get away with it. God says, I will take care of that. But he also says, it's not on your job description. It's not on my job description to take care of that. Okay? You accommodate them, go ahead. It seems like they're winning right now. But I will take care of that. And what we need to do instead is to let our faith in God transform our lives. And that transformation begins with where we search for our acceptance in life. Where do you find your acceptance in life? See, we have to find our acceptance in God. Remy Dieterich in his book Stuck says, if I want to shake you up and get in your head and make you angry, all I have to do is disrespect you and threaten your sense of control. Nothing will undo you quicker than that. Well, what is the antidote to people unnerving us in life like that? What, what do we do you know, if they disrespect us or they invalidate us? The antidote to that is actually dying for our, our, our need to have those things. Listen to what Matthew 16, 24 says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul said the very thing, same thing and told us that much in Galatians 2.20, our key verse, foundational verse for today, you know, where he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Where did Paul look for guidance in how to live his life? Where did he look for strength or for validation? Where did he look for respect in life? He looked to God. He died to life as we know it in this world, and he trusted fully in the life that God had for him. And do you realize that we can actually die to our human need to have everybody like us? We can die to that human need for everyone to approve of us. 
We can die to the human need of having everybody cheer us on and tell us how important we are. Which, by the way, these earthly perspectives only lead to heartache, disappointment, and anger when they do not happen. Here's the deal. The Bible only uses 27 verses to communicate to us our value. God cuts right to the chase because he knows how deeply seated within each of us is our need for validation. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our worth, our dignity, our value, no matter how marred by sin in our lives it may be, is tied to being created in God's image. Our value is an unconditional gift to us. It's not based upon our performance. We don't earn it and we cannot lose it. So guess what? No one can take away our value, no matter what they say about us or what they do to us. We cannot be invalidated. And when being put down, we need to separate ourselves from the criticisms that we're encountering or the mistreatment we're encountering by remembering our infinite worth to God. We actually need to take a page out of the book of Romans and out of the Psalms. In Romans 3 verse 4, it says, let God be true and every human being a liar. And the psalmist said, from his perspective anyway, everyone in Psalm 116 verse 11, everyone is a liar. So why do we go through life listening to people who are known to be outright liars and not listening to God who tells us the truth all the time, every time? We need to listen to God and what God says about our value because others will simply misrepresent our value and frankly, sometimes we're actually our own worst enemy. We will even lie about our own value, about our own worth because you know we're the ones who are notorious for saying, oh, I'm so stupid or I'm worthless or I'm no good or I'm ugly or I'm a, you know, we got all these things. And the people who listen to what God says about them are the people who are less likely to be all wrapped up in life in anger. Well, the next thing we have to discover to find our acceptance in God is to realize that God is in control. Now, I must acknowledge right away that it doesn't always look like God is in control. This is why following God is a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief in God and and a matter of the heart rather than what we can always see in life. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we live by faith and not by sight. And Romans 8, 31 says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question there, answers itself, pretty obvious. No one can be against us because God is on our side. So God, good can even come in our lives even though we might be experiencing some difficult times. That's why three verses earlier, it said in the book of Romans that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. We're not the ones in control, but God is. So we don't have to go through life being afraid. We don't have to go through life being angry. We, we can trust God. We don't have to scream and yell and get all upset and get, you know, to get our offender to stop doing the things that irritate us. We can give our anger to God and rest in his sovereign care for our lives. And folks, you need to understand this. 
gaining the victory over anger is less about changing our offender or offenders in life, and it's more about changing ourselves. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Dr. Martin Luther King took this to heart in the late 1950s and early 1960s when he was very angry about the way black people were treated in America, that their civil rights were being denied and trampled upon, and that their dignity as human beings was constantly being attacked. So he took his anger over this to God. And what did God do? God gave Dr. King an unconventional method for protesting these injustices. He gave Dr. Martin Luther King the method of nonviolent protests. Dr. King said, Nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of the spirit. This means that you not only refuse to physically hurt another person, but that you refuse to hate them. See, this willingness to demonstrate nonviolently by trusting God was radical. And it wasn't liked by some blacks who felt that it was too passive. They didn't want to have to wait to receive respect, to wait to receive opportunities, to wait for their civil rights. They wanted them right now. And this sounds familiar, doesn't it? We also want to wrestle control of our lives out of the hands of God and then call our own shots. That's why we want results right now. This is why we get all lathered up and get all upset and get all angry and jump up and down and yell and holler because we want our own way. And yes, we do need to understand our anger through knowing our losses in life and knowing our triggers, what triggers that. But we also need to see the bigger picture that is a whole lot bigger than our tiny little individual lives. And the bigger picture is God is in control. The third thing you need to understand about finding our acceptance in God is that God is the one who's our example when it comes to dealing with anger. Psalm 103 verse eight says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Bible says more about God being angry than it says about human beings being angry. But God doesn't sin in his anger, so we need to understand how God manages it. Do you know how I know that God is slow to anger? Because I'm still here. And do you know how I know that God is slow to anger? Because every one of you are still here. God is slow to anger. So we should be slow to anger. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's for our own well-being to overlook offenses. It's to our own advancement in life. It's to our own improvement. It's to our own reputation and well-being. You could go on and on, even exaltation if you want. It's to our own glory to overlook offenses in life. In James chapter 1, verse 19, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When we choose to listen, to hear people, to understand them, to hear them out, and in that process then, we will be slow to speak, which then tells us what Proverbs 13, 3 says, that's realized in our lives because it says those who guard their lips preserve their lives. 
if we're slow to speak, you know, quick to listen, we're actually going to be preserving our lives, enhancing our lives. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, a gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Bible teaches us that we should think before we speak. And if we are actually unsure of what we should say, then we shouldn't say anything. Because we can always say something later, but we cannot unspeak words that we've already said. Yes, we can apologize, we can ask forgiveness, but I'll tell you what, that's a lot tougher to do that, and it's hard to get back to square one than it is to just not say something if we know that it's going to be inappropriate. You know, when we choose to be quick to listen, slow to speak, then this helps us with the third command here in this, in this verse, to be slow to anger. And when we are cautious like this to become angry, folks, we're never more Christ-like than that. Verse 20 goes on to say that human anger in James chapter 1 does not bring about the righteousness that God desires, the righteous life that God wants. So these verses here in James point out to us that anger is a human response because we don't have to become angry. We don't have to blow off steam. We don't have to lose it. We don't have to lose control. We don't have to say that, well, I just can't help it. That's the way I am when I'm angry. Here's the deal. No one can make us angry. We actually do it to ourselves. We're the ones who choose whether or not we are going to become angry. We're giving power to people if we just get angry over every little thing. We're giving them that power in our lives. Proverbs 17, 27 says, the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even tempered. The Bible teaches over and over again that there is power in knowledge and understanding. So the more that you know how anger works, and the more you understand how your anger works in you, primary losses, secondary losses, and triggers, the more you will learn to exercise restraint, to be Christ-like, to be slow to anger. See, God is our example to follow. Don't follow what others have done in your lifetime to get their way. Don't follow even what has worked for you in the past. When you raised your voice, you got results. Or when you got hot under the collar, you got results. Or when you pouted or went on your little self-pity parade and were rewarded with attention. Do not continue to reinforce that behavior. Follow God's example of being slow to anger. Now the fourth important part, uh, part of finding our acceptance in God is to recognize that God has provided a way for us to control our sinful expressions of anger. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and has given us power through the indwelling Holy Spirit to overcome our sin. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through uh, 10 for a moment. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but you now, now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, 
and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in knowledge in the image of its creator. It tells us in verse 5, we have to put to death that old former way of life before we came to Christ, faith in Christ Jesus. And verses 8, 9, and 10 talk about putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. And this is actually a clothing metaphor. We have dirty, filthy garments that we are wearing around in the old life, and we need to take those off. Don't go out into public with all those dirty, filthy garments. Don't go home to your your family with those dirty, filthy garments on. That's the old way of life. Take them off and put on the new garments, the new self in Christ Jesus. Please note that God's word here doesn't make any exceptions for people with short fuses or those who have been victimized in life as some of us have been. God's word doesn't say, well, this applies to everybody else except those of you that, that really you know, just can't control your anger uh, and, and explode before you have time to think about it. It doesn't say, you're okay, everybody else put on the new self, but you're okay because you've, you've been a victim in life. It doesn't say that. First of all here, you need to understand, as we discussed in last week's, or two weeks ago's message, that we can flip the switch of anger, can't we, in a matter of seconds. If a person in authority steps into the room when we're expressing anger, we can shut it off just like that. If we receive a phone call from someone we need to talk to and have a really important phone conversation with, we can shut the switch off like that. So we actually have more control over our anger than what we like to admit. Secondly, you need to understand this. God never commands us or asks us to do something in the Bible that we cannot do by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says this, you however are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the spirit. What is it saying? If you're in Christ Jesus, you are not in the realm of the flesh anymore. That's not how your life is lived or should be lived. You're in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 25. So I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, or it can also say, translated, outbursts of anger. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And remember, the word fruit here implies a growth process. When we walk daily in step with the Holy Spirit, we begin to produce fruit. Fruit doesn't just show up on plants. 
You know, there's usually pruning that goes on beforehand, and then you get blossoms, and then there's a growth period that takes place, and fruit is produced over time, and it ripens and and fully matures. Well, this does require participation on our part. It requires attention on our part and nurture on our part. So in the instance of anger welling up inside of us, what would happen if we actually stopped at those moments long enough to recognize what was happening because of maybe one of the triggers, one of the flags that went up in our lives related to losses that we've had? And what if at that moment we called on God for help What if we ask God for his strength, for the willpower to do the right thing? What would happen in those moments? I think we would see increasing, overwhelming victories over our anger. An expert in the field of anger management, Remy Diederich, who I've quoted a number of times in this sermon series, offers up a model prayer for us in times like these. He says this, here's a prayer we can pray. God, I've been thinking about my anger And I realize that it's not so much about this isolated problem in front of me. It's more about my feeling disrespected. It's more about me not having control. Before I say anything to this person, what do you want to say to me? What do I need to know about my insecurities and fear? Help me see this from your perspective. And he says, if you listen closely, you might hear God say something like this to you. You're right. You're not in control. I am. Trust me. You have been disrespected. I know it hurts. My respect is all that really matters. Don't retaliate it. But don't run away either. Engage be smart, be constructive, tell them how you feel respectfully with a resolve to restore, not attack. And be patient. Listen, don't force it. Let me do my work in my way in my time. Let's pray together. God, for many of us here today, our sinful anger is a learned response. It's a chosen response. And dear God, I ask you today that you would help us to grow to the point where we can actually think and pray before we respond to these injuries we have. And God, embed in us the message deeply in our hearts that our value in life comes from you and from no one else, so that it ultimately doesn't matter what other people say about us. And that through your Holy Spirit, may we find victory over our human anger, which does not produce, God, the righteousness that you desire. O God, may the fruit of your Holy Spirit, self-control, flourish in our lives, and to you be the glory for that in Jesus' name.